This episode of Red or Dead is sponsored by TBR, Book Riot's subscription service offering reading recommendations personalized to your reading life. Want great new mystery books to read but overwhelmed by all the publishing buzz? Let us help. Tell TBR about your reading likes and dislikes and what you're looking for and sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email so there's an option for every budget. TBR is produced in partnership with Print, a bookstore in Portland, Maine, so you can treat your shelf and support an indie too. And TBR is available as a gift. You can visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. Welcome to Red or Dead, a bi-weekly podcast where we talk about the world of mysteries and thrillers. This is episode 86, and we're recording on Tuesday, September 22nd. I'm Katie McLean Horner, along with Rincey Abraham, and we're coming to you from Book Riot. Hi, Katie. Hi, Rincey. How are you on this? Is this the first day of fall, or was yesterday the first day of fall? I think it was yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, you can really hear the confidence in my voice as I say that. It's fall. <laughs> exactly. It's fall. It's actually funny because uh, one of my friends I was talking to on the phone while she was like driving home from work and uh, she was like, oh, it's so dark outside. It's only seven o'clock. And I'm like, yeah, it's fall. <laughs> when did that happen? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Officially yesterday. <laughs> Apparently. I also noticed yesterday just a ton of people on my Facebook and my Twitter pages posting a link to the video September by Earth, Wind and Fire. <laughs> mm. Like 10 different people posted it. And I'm like, okay, I get it. <laughs> oh, I'm definitely going to butcher his name. Uh, but Demi, um, he co-hosted the Gilmore Guys podcast. Was that what it's? Yeah, Gilmore Guys uh, podcast. He did this thing for the past five years where he does like a video where like music, like the song September by Earth, Wind and Fire is playing. But he like does a whole thing. And it's become this like running gag. And like each year it got like more and more elaborate. Um, and this year was the fifth year. And he basically said like, hey, I'm not going to do this anymore unless you guys raise like $50,000, which will go to like these specific charities. And then like people like did it in like a number of hours. And he's like, oh, I guess I'm doing this again next year. then. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, those videos are like amazing. And it's specifically, I think, because like you follow it from like year to year and it just starts off like, you know, five years ago is like just this thing that he did. And then he did it a second time and everyone thought it was hilarious. And then now it's come to the point where like he legitimately like builds a set or at least for this one, he like built a set and like rented a like a plane that was like flying a banner. Like it, it's gotten real crazy, but it's amazing. <laughs> it's like a whole production. It legitimately is, but it's still like really only him and like someone else running the camera basically. <laughs> but it's I'm always thoroughly impressed by it. And I always and the thing is, is like, I always forget about it until he posts it on Twitter and everyone starts retweeting it. And I'm like, oh, right. September 21st, he's posting the video. <laughs> it's like the Christmas you forgot about. Exactly. It's great. It's even better than Christmas. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, happy fall, everyone. And I'll jump into our first sponsor. Our first sponsor is White Fox by Sarah Faring with Fierce Reads. After their world-famous mother disappears under mysterious circumstances, sisters Manon and Theus are sent away from their remote Mediterranean home by their father. Lured home a decade later by the death of their father, the sisters discover their mother's legendary last work, White Fox, a screenplay filled with enigmatic metaphors. 
The clues in this dark fairy tale draw them deep into society's surreal underbelly into the twisted secrets hidden by their glittering family to reveal the truth about their mother and themselves. So White Fox is a new thriller from Sarah Faring, and if the name sounds familiar, she wrote the book The Tenth Girl. Entertainment Weekly calls it a ghost story that will spook even the most hardened grown-ups, so perfect for this fall season that we are in. Um, This is part ghost story, part dark fairy tale, and it's a story about a twisted family filled with secrets that will leave you breathless. So beyond the family element of the story lies a story of fame and something truly frightening. With a creeping sense of something sinister lurking, White Fox by Sarah Faring is sure to keep you up late into the night. And we thank Fierce Reads for sponsoring this episode. All right. So welcome to all of our lovely listeners. If you are a new listener, welcome. We're so happy to have you. If you're a longtime listener, welcome back. We're so excited that you have continued to join us on this fantastic ride. So... As we mentioned at the top of the show, we talk about mysteries, thrillers, suspense, true crime, anything and everything that falls under that umbrella is fair game here. So whether that's movie adaptations or awards or new subgenres or whatever the case may be, if it's mystery and suspense, we're definitely interested. And if you've listened to the show before, you know that this is the part where we ask our listeners to let us know if they have any suggestions for topics they'd like us to cover in future episodes. So this is a really fun way for us to plan out what we want to talk about over the course of several weeks. It helps us plan episodes and keep things fresh. And it also makes sure that, you know, we're talking about stuff that all of you are actually interested in hearing about. And it just introduces us to a lot of new ideas and subgenres and authors that we may not have otherwise talked about if someone hadn't suggested it. So put those thinking caps on. We'll have our contact information at the end of the show, so you can make a note of it at that time. But we always like to put this out at the beginning just to get everyone thinking. And if even if you don't have a show idea, but you just want to say hi, we love that also. We love hearing from people who have been listening to us for so long. And with that, I guess we'll jump into the uh, the news section. What you got for us, Rincey? So first up, uh, it was announced that Walter Mosley is going to be the recipient of the 2020 Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters. So this is basically like the equivalent of a Lifetime Achievement Award given out by the National Book Foundation. There isn't a whole lot more I think I really need to say other than Walter Mosley is a great and obvious choice. Uh, It's wild because it says in here that he has written more than 60 novels, which like, Mind blown gif here. Uh, <laughs> like, obviously, like, I know he's extremely prolific. I've seen the number of books that he's put out in just the mystery genre alone, but I know that he's also put out plenty of other books in- that fall into like speculative fiction and general contemporary fiction and things like that. So yeah, definitely well-deserved. Apparently, he has also won uh, a Grammy, which now I want to Google that to know what for, as well as like NAACP awards and, you know, Edgar Awards, the Obvious Mystery Awards, things like that. So he will be receiving that award in November. Obviously, the National Book Foundation won't be having like an in-person like award show or anything like that because, you know, 2020. Uh, But very excited to uh, have Walter Mosley announced as this year's recipient. 
And then the other piece of news, which I feel like a lot of people who listen to this podcast will be very excited about if they haven't heard this yet already. Apparently, there is going to be a series adaptation of The Westing Game at HBO Max, which is kind of wild thinking about it because like, yeah, this is like classic middle grade young adult mystery book that I know so many people really, really love. And again, it's just like very, very surprising that this hasn't been really adapted anytime recently. But again, yay for uh, all of the streaming services for allowing things like this happen. There is no like writers or anything like that attached to the project. Uh, Julie Corman owns the rights to the novel and is serving as an executive producer. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very sure that there are plenty of people here who uh, love the Western game. So I just wanted to give that heads up that there might be a series coming to HBO Max very soon with this as an adaptation. And it's funny because I always think of HBO as like, you know, they do the really gritty style shows or the gritty reboots or something and gritty and the Westing game just don't really go together. So I'll be interested to see how this how this actually gets adapted and what their twist on it's going to be. Well, I mean, HBO Max, we just talked about it. They are like adapting Pretty Little Liars and all this stuff. So I wonder if they're kind of targeting like this, like young adult middle grade age group now with all of the stuff that they've been picking up, or they're just trying to adapt everything and just like appeal to everyone, which is very possible too. But I just feel like this was like, really interesting in conjunction with the fact that they're rebooting Pretty Little Liars, they're rebooting Gossip Girl, and stuff like that. So there's like this whole section, like age group that they seem to be targeting, which I would not have expected at all for HBO. All right. And then our final piece of news for this episode is another bit of adaptation news in that Amazon got the rights to All the Old Knives, which is a thriller by Olin Steinhauer. And there isn't a ton of information about it, although they do have the two main actors attached to this adaptation, and it's going to be Chris Pine and Thandi Newton. And I know absolutely nothing about the plot of this book, but they had me at Chris Pine and Thandi Newton. So this is going to be, this is probably going to be one sexy thriller. Let me just say that right now. So if you are familiar with Olin Steinhauer's books, he writes a lot of espionage fiction and that kind of thriller, that subgenre. And the story looks like it takes place, it follows ex-lovers, one who was a CIA spy, one who is a former spy, who meet over dinner to reminisce on their time together at Vienna Station, and the conversation moves inevitably to a hijacking and other things that happened. And then as they flirt over dinner, it becomes clear that one of them is not going to survive the meal. So an espionage thriller with a very focused lens, it looks like. But like I said, Chris Pine and Thandie Newton, I'm excited about that, and as we get more information about that, we'll pass it along. But uh, you might you might want to add this one to you, to your adaptation list to keep an eye on. All right, so uh, that's all the news that we have for this week, a light news week. So we'll jump right into the main topic for this episode. Um, I should say that this topic came from a listener. They emailed us basically asking for like adult versions of Scooby-Doo mysteries, uh, which is like a very difficult prompt to actually accomplish uh, or to this find. This was books. hard. This was, yeah, this was so hard because originally Katie and I were trying to look for books that had like kind of 
goofy vibes to it or had like gangs of people in like that Scooby-Doo sense, but not necessarily direct Scooby-Doo related entities. Uh, but we kind of had to give up on that. But if there are books out there like that, please like email us or tweet at us and let us know because I'm someone who like definitely watched Scooby-Doo growing up and very much enjoyed it, um, which led to me like very much enjoying the book I eventually read for this episode. <laughs> but I could, I like legitimately couldn't like it's very that like finding like Scooby-Doo books is not easy. Like you can't just Google Scooby-Doo books without getting like actual books about Scooby-Doo or like Scooby-Doo themed books. So like this is not like an easy theme or topic to find at all. <laughs> No, it's really, it's really not. And I like to think that I'm pretty good at thinking, you know, outside of the box when it comes to reading recommendations, because that's a huge part of what I do at work at my library. And this one, I was trying a bunch of different things that I could think of. And yeah, it was, we were not getting any suggestions that we were like, yeah, you know what, that actually works. I see the connection or yeah, that would, that might be an interesting fit. So we did have to go a little bit more li uh, literal with this. but. My my book is actually was a lot of fun actually. So, but also before we jump into that, Rincey also saved a news article. We'll have a link to this in the show notes. Um, but I was not aware of this. But apparently, Joe Ruby, who was one of the co-creators of Scooby Doo, passed away in August of this year. So that's and this will also indicate how long we've been trying to figure out this prompt because back in August Rincey saved this this link knowing that eventually we'd get to the Scooby-Doo episode. Yeah, it's a uh, I don't think we really need to talk about Scooby-Doo that much because I feel like Scooby-Doo was created in like the 1960s. Like it says in this article, it premiered in like 1969 or something like that. And they've basically done versions of Scooby-Doo since then, like there's always been a version of Scooby-Doo that like every generation has been able to watch. Like even now, if you go on Netflix, there's like a reboot version of the cartoon Scooby-Doo. So I don't think we really need to explain what it is. But just in case someone's listening to this and they're not sure what Scooby-Doo is, uh, it started off as a cartoon kind of in like the same era and idea as like Flintstones and things like that. So kind of those Hanna-Barbera sort of style, but obviously not like directly Hanna-Barbera related. At least I don't believe so. Uh, but you're basically following a group of teenagers and they're Shaggy, who is one of the teenagers, uh, dog Scooby-Doo as they like solve crimes. And it's just like a really fun, silly show uh, that doesn't always make very much sense. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, for kids. And it's just like a really just kind of like slapstick funny, uh, or at least like the version that I watch, I'm sure that it's still like this. But yeah, it's just like kind of slapstick funny, but also like solving crimes on the side. And it's usually like, someone getting up to crazy hijinks or something like that uh, during over the course of the episode. So that was kind of like the idea and the vibe behind uh, the stories and like the series of Scooby-Doo and all of its reboots. Um, I never watched any of the more recent ones, although some of them look like real terrible. They might be funny, like the version that came out, I think, when I was a teenager with Freddie Prince Jr. And uh <laughs> Sarah Michelle Geller and all of that. <laughs> like, I don't remember who else. There are other people. Matthew Lillard. <laughs> yes, Matthew Lillard was uh, Scooby, or not Scooby, Shaggy. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that that was a fun but terrible adaptation. But 
Other than that, I've only watched what I think is the original, although it might have been like a maybe a 1980s reboot at that point. Who knows? The mo- I will say I was not a Scooby-Doo kid uh, growing up, but obviously, you know, everyone, everyone in America usually is familiar with Scooby-Doo. But I have seen some of the newer episodes, thanks to my six and a half year old nephew visiting um, over the last few months. And they're not very funny. <laughs> They're, they're, I mean, they, they have the Scooby, the, they follow very similar plot lines, but yeah, I can only take a couple episodes before I'm like, let's find something else to watch, shall we? Oh, no. I mean, honestly, like, I'm sure, like, if there was an adult in the room while I was watching my episodes of Scooby-Doo as a kid, they probably felt the exact same way. (laughs) So, Katie, do you want to jump into your Scooby-Doo pick first? Yeah, um, so my book is really interesting. Because it's both a direct homage to Scooby-Doo and a completely, like, its own take on it. But this book is called Meddling Kids by Edgar Cantero. And if you're familiar with Scooby-Doo, you'll notice the the tie-in right away with the title. And I would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for you meddling kids. So this book is bonkers. I will say at the beginning, I have not gotten all the way through the book yet, but I've gotten through a good chunk of it, so I can talk about it with some authority here. So the story follows a group of, well, now they're adults in their 20s, but 13 years previously, they were teenagers in this little town in Oregon, and they solved mysteries like the case of the missing sheep and you know, what's going on at the haunted house on the lake, that kind of a thing. And they uncovered, you know, they discovered the bad guys. And it was always, you know, some older guy in a monster suit and stuff like that. But their last case, which was the case of the Daboon Mansion, and they figuring out if there was actually a lake monster. What do lake monsters do? Terrorizing, I guess. Like, lake monsters don't haunt, but the lake monster terrorizing the area and what's what's going on at the Daboon Mansion, which is on an island in the middle of the lake. And they apprehended a criminal, but 13 years later, they're realizing that there was something else going on there. And they're not quite sure what it was, but it was not natural. So this book is very definitely a blend of mystery and kind of Lovecraftian horror, but not horror in a super scary way. This book is so quirky, and it's filled with pop culture references, not just to Scooby-Doo, but to other pop culture things. Like, I think there's a Monty Python reference in there, and there's just a bunch of stuff. And so 13 years later, these three of the four kids, one of them has died, the the three kids, now adults, and their dog, Tim, <laughs> they get together and they drive across the country to revisit their last case because they feel like they have some unfinished business. So this is like a very, very quirky Stephen King kind of novel because Stephen King has written so many stories about like, you know, a group of kids banding together or a group of kids, you know, banding together and then coming back together as adults. It's a very common theme in his stories. And it's that part of this book has a very similar feel. But yeah, it is totally just off the wall zany. And it also, but it also has a lot of heart to it. Like, 
it's it's so hard to really put a label on this book. It just completely defies labels, but the characters are sympathetic and interesting, and like I said, it's quirky, it's funny, it's kind of dark, it's very atmospheric. It's just, it's a lot of fun. Like, I think this book, even though it directly references Scooby-Doo, and it's very clear that this is a that this not a not a spin-off but you you can you definitely see the connections to the Scooby-Doo stories. I think this book really hits all of the spots that you that if you're looking for a book with a Scooby-Doo like feel, this book is really I think going to hit all of those high notes for you. The quirkiness, the funniness, the nostalgia, you know, the atmospheric quality, the slight creepiness and it's just got so much going on with it. Again, that is called Meddling Kids by Edgar Cantero. All right, and then before Rinsey jumps into her pick, I have our second sponsor for the episode, which is Size Zero by Abigail Mangan. Condom dresses and space helmets have debuted on fashion runways, and a dead body becomes the trend when a coat made of human skin saunters down fashion's biggest stage. The body is identified as Annabelle Lee, the teenager who famously disappeared over a decade ago from her boyfriend's New York City mansion. This new evidence casts suspicion back on the former boyfriend, Cecil LeClaire. Now a monk, he is forced to return to his dark and absurd childhood home to clear his name. He teams up with Ava Germain, a renegade ex-model, and together they investigate the depraved and lawless modeling industry behind Cecil's family fortune. So we have had this book as a sponsor before on our episodes, and I just love this synopsis. And I still need to make a note to actually pick up this book and read it, because they had me at a coat made of human skin. I'm sorry. (laughs) So if you are looking for an just an outlandish suspense novel that sounds like it's going to be nothing like anything you've ever read before, make sure to pick up Size Zero by Abigail Mangan, and we thank them very much for sponsoring this episode. All right. So uh, kind of similar to Katie, but also not. I obviously picked up a Scooby-Doo adjacent book. And so this is a new series from Josephine Ruby that is basically like a modern retelling almost of Scooby-Doo. It's called the Daphne and Velma series. So you're specifically following Daphne and Velma. And the first book is called The Vanishing Girl, which is the one that I read, although there's already two books out in this series. This is a young adult series. Um, it's basically like if Scooby-Doo got the Riverdale treatment, but not quite as like wild and out there as Riverdale. Uh, but it definitely has that sort of like contemporary teen feelings to it. Like I could 100% see this being a show on like the CW or something like that because it has all of those vibes. So uh, like I said, you're following Daphne and Velma. And the story is actually told from both of their perspectives. So each chapter goes back and forth between their two points of view which is really fantastic. In this version of the Scooby-Doo world, Daphne and Velma were friends growing up, but then something happened that led to them not being friends anymore. And so now you're following them as they're in high school and they, again, aren't friends anymore, but they're not necessarily like enemies either. They basically just like don't talk to each other, which, you know, happens in life. And it's fun because they give you like a backstory and they basically say like all of the crazy hijinks that they got up to before were just them being kids. Um, So like in this world, they as like Scooby-Doo almost characters would like get into trouble 
as like maybe like preteens. Um, and it even says that they were friends with like Fred and Shaggy and Shaggy has Scooby and they would all just kind of go on these like imaginative hijinks together and, you know, quote unquote, solve crimes around town and things like that. But all of the crimes that they solved were like very minor things about their f- friends and stuff like that. Until one day that Velma sees someone trying to basically take down the like carnival park area that her mom works at. And I think like in investigating that is where they find out that Daphne's mom is actually having an affair and then Daphne's parents get a divorce eventually. And that's basically like what creates this original divide in their friendship. Um, So again, they don't talk to each other anymore. Daphne's part of like the popular crowd. Obviously, Velma is like the nerdy one. Uh, And they just stay in separate social circles. And then one day, Daphne's friend basically goes missing. But right before she goes missing, she starts telling everyone, including the local newspaper, that she saw a ghost. And The thing about the town that they live in is that like ghosts are kind of part of the draw of this town. So they live in kind of like a smaller town. Again, think Riverdale-esque where like tourists will come in to visit these like haunted quote unquote places and things like that. So ghost stories are kind of like part of the mythos of this town, but also like People like Daphne and Velma don't really believe that there are ghosts in this town. Um, So when Daphne's friend starts telling everyone that she saw a ghost, Daphne starts to get like really concerned about what's going on with her friend. Um, And then Daphne's friend just goes missing completely. And so the two of them team up. Daphne basically asks Velma to help her uh, figure out what exactly is happening. And obviously the things that are happening and the stuff that Daphne's friend was saying also affects Velma and could lead to her mother potentially losing her job and stuff like that. So there's a reason why she's also helping Daphne. It's not just like out of the goodness of her heart. So like I said, this is a retelling that has like a very like modern Riverdale-esque sort of feeling to it, but it's not quite as like out there as like Riverdale eventually gets uh, for those of you who watch Riverdale. Uh, But it definitely has those sort of like modern twists on the story. It actually, parts of it reminded me of sort of like a Veronica Mars-esque vibe as well. I don't know if it's just like the teen girl detective in this smaller town where everyone knows each other and everyone has a history sort of thing really like ring that bell for me, but I definitely got that feeling from this story as well. I can't imagine that like, if you don't know Scooby-Doo that you would necessarily love this story because I think a lot of the fun of this story and the way this book is written is kind of having a knowledge of Scooby-Doo and kind of like the way that town works um, and seeing sort of how Josephine Ruby chooses to adapt the story and change the characters. Like I said, it's mainly following Daphne and Velma. So you're getting a lot of like their backstory. You learn a little bit about Shaggy and Shaggy definitely gets like a jughead treatment if we're creating parallels to Riverdale, (laughs) where like he's kind of like the cute stoner of the like of their high school class. Um, And he has like a rich parent and he throws all these parties and stuff like that. So I feel like he definitely gets like a modern jughead sort of twist to him. Uh, Fred barely shows up in this book. But like I said, this is the first book in a series. So what I'm imagining will happen is that like as Josephine Ruby continues to write more of these books, you'll find out more backstory about the other characters. Um, I definitely want there to be a 
a book in the future where Scooby gets to go along for one of these mysteries because there, Scooby is a dog. Obviously, he is a normal dog in these books and not a dog that can solve crimes. But I would love it if they would involve Scooby in uh, one of these stories in the future and have him like be part of the crime solving case and stuff like that. So yeah, if you are a fan of like young adult books and you enjoy you know, Scooby-Doo and stuff like that. I thought this was really, really fun. They have the first two books, like the audiobooks on Hoopla. So if you have Hoopla, if you use Hoopla through your local library, you can check it out for free there. And I found it to be like, just again, a really fun audiobook. They even have like two different narrators for the Daphne and Velma chapters, which is really cool. So again, the first book in the series is called The Vanishing Girl. And that is by Josephine Ruby. I'm sitting here going like, okay, now I demand a another book but entirely dedicated to scrappy do <laughs> i don't even know how that'll work <laughs> i don't know but i demand it <laughs> we can send uh, josephine ruby an email or something <laughs> i want the young adult scrappy do book please <laughs> at any rate so if you have any other suggestions and perhaps some non-literal uh, suggestions for fans of Scooby-Doo, we would love to hear them because like I said, this this suggestion was really intriguing but really difficult. So we've had this one sitting in our inbox for a little bit and finally we're like, okay, we're just going to have to do the literal Scooby-Doo book. So if you have any ideas or ways that you've interpreted it um, or any other suggestions that might fit with this theme, let us know because this was a lot of fun. And then with that, I guess, uh, Rinsey, do you want to kick us off with some fantastic new releases? Sure, I will. So the first one that I picked out is already out as of this recording. Um, it is called The Thursday Murder Club, and it is by Richard Osmond. And so this is a book that I picked up partially because like the cover looks really cool, um, but partially also because I feel like we get a lot of requests and Perhaps I could read this for a future episode, but for books featuring older characters, which this one definitely does. So you are following four unlikely friends um, as they live in this sort of peaceful retirement village, and they meet weekly in what they call the Jigsaw Room to discuss unsolved crimes. And so together, they call themselves the Thursday Murder Club. When a local developer is found dead with a mysterious photograph left next to the body, the Thursday Murder Club suddenly find themselves in the middle of their first live case. And so as the bodies begin to pile up, can our unorthodox but brilliant gang catch the killer before it's too late? So this just sounds like a really fun kind of like cozy adjacent. Like it, I don't think it's like an actual cozy mystery. But if you are the type of person who likes sort of like cozy adjacent, what I'm calling kid mysteries, then this one seems like it'll be uh, a good one to pick up. And again, it's featuring like older protagonists and, you know, that sort of uh, amateur detective sort of style. So if any of that is something that you look for in your mystery books, uh, The Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman is out now. Maybe it's like an aging Scooby-Doo gang. Oh, that would be pretty cool. Now I need to pick this one up to see if that actually is what happens. <laughs> See if it fits the Scooby-Doo theme. <laughs> All right. So the next book that we have on our list is also out this week. And this book is called And Now She's Gone by Rachel Housel Hall. And of course, if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know that Rachel Housel Hall is one of our favorite authors that we like to talk about again and again. So she has a brand new book out this week. And the book starts off with Isabel... Lincoln, who has gone missing. But is she really missing? 
It's up to Grace and Sykes to find her. Although she is reluctant to track down a woman who may not want to be found, Gray's search for Isabel Lincoln becomes more complicated and dangerous with every new revelation about the woman's secrets and the truth she's hidden from her friends and family. Featuring two complicated women in a dangerous cat-and-mouse game, Rachel Housel Hall's And Now She's Gone explores the nature of secrets and how violence and fear can lead you to abandon everything in order to survive. So if you've read any of Rachel Housel Hall's books before, you know that she is just an awesome writer. Her books are always very suspenseful, lots of interesting characters. And so again, her latest one out this week is called And Now She's Gone. All right, next up, I have The Book of Lamps and Banners by Elizabeth Hand. And so I do have to mention that this is the fourth book in what is being called like the Castanieri series. So for those of you who are like chronic, uh, I need to read the series from the very beginning type of people, just know this is book four. Um, I picked this book out partially because of the cover. Uh, It is like bright pink and has a crow on it. It looks pretty badass so uh just just google this and you'll see what i'm talking about and you'll be like oh i understand now so in this story you are following photographer Cass Neary, who is desperate to get home and she's already lost her camera which is basically like losing a limb for a photographer like her so now her only ca- chance to get cash is to uh do a deal that a friend is about to cut for a legendary illuminated manuscript the book of lamps and banners Rumored to have been rescued from the library at Alexandria, the book is said to contain ancient esoteric knowledge, even an otherworldly power. So when an intruder brazenly steals the manuscript, Cass and her ex-con lover Quinn must get it back by plunging headlong into a shady underworld where antiquarian booksellers, unhinged tech entrepreneurs, and brutal nationalists all converge. Um, so this is a psychological thriller. Elizabeth Hand, like I said, has written a number of books in this series. But I think this is one of those series where you don't necessarily need to read the other books in order to, you know, jump in. And so because I've seen like plenty of people in my like personal Goodreads feed and stuff like that who just decided to pick this book up and really, really enjoyed it. So um, again, I recommend just uh, clicking on the link if only to see what this cover looks like because it looks amazing. Uh, but if that synopsis also sounded interesting to you, the book is called The Book of Lamps and Banners by Elizabeth Hand. All right. And then rounding out our new releases, I have a book that I also picked partially because of the cover. This cover is gorgeous. I can't even quite describe it. It's it, oh, it's just so cool and eerie looking. But this is this book is called The Cabin on Souter Hill by Lonnie Bush. And this comes out next week on September 29th. And the two main characters in this book are Michelle and Cliff Stage, who purchase an isolated vacation cabin in the mountains of North Carolina. And when will book characters learn you can't buy isolated mountain cabins? It never works out well. But anyway, they buy this cabin in the mountains of North Carolina with the hopes of repairing their 18-year marriage. But when Cliff disappears one night searching for the source of a mysterious light in the woods, Michelle's life will change in unimaginable ways. After the sheriff's department fails to find him, Michelle scrambles down the same dark mountainside alone, the strange beckoning light her only guide. What she discovers is a cabin, identical to theirs, housing a life she barely recognizes and a husband she hardly knows. Cliff is a changed man. He is now caring and considerate and no longer a manipulative womanizer, and he is also missing a finger. And he claims that Cassie, their teenage daughter, is dead, killed in a car accident over a year ago. 
Except Michelle knows that's not possible because Cassie had phoned her from Atlanta only hours before. Even when she's shown Cassie's grave, Michelle refuses to accept that she's gone. Michelle wants her daughter and her life back, and the only clue to what has happened is a man named Pink. Pink is a real estate agent and the man who years earlier built Michelle and Cliff's cabin. He was rumored to have killed his wife and buried her on the property and then vanished, never to be seen again. But in Michelle's new reality, Pink and his wife still reside in town, and Pink's smile-splashed billboards are everywhere. To get back to the world where her daughter exists, Michelle must unravel the mystery of Pink while questioning her very reality and her sanity. So this book, when I was reading the synopsis, I was just like, wow, that did not go where I thought it would. So this is does not sound at all like your typical straightforward suspense novel. Clearly there's some there's something with either an alternate universe or time travel or just weird stuff's happening here. But it also asks a lot of questions about the nature of existence, the choices we make to form it. It just sounds so, so interesting and so different. And like I said, the the cover of this book is beautiful. So again, this book is called The Cabin on Souter Hill, and it's by Lonnie Bush, and it comes out next week on September 29th. All right. So to wrap up our episode, we can uh, talk about some of the things that we have been reading or plan on reading. Um, I have two books I want to talk about, both of which I've finished already. The first one I mentioned briefly last week is When No One Is Watching by Alyssa Cole. Uh, Holy cow, did this book really like amp up my anxiety. (laughs) So I listened to this on audiobook too, which I think is part of the reason because it felt like they were in my head. But uh, if you aren't aware, this book is basically being pitched as like rear window meets get out, which is like very much an apt description for it. The story is told from two perspectives. One of them is this woman named Sydney Green, who is a black woman. She was born and brought up in this specific Brooklyn neighborhood. Um, but basically, this specific neighborhood of Brooklyn, like most of Brooklyn, is now being gentrified. And so she is like extremely distressed by the fact that like all of the people that she grew up with no longer lives in the neighborhood and everything around her is changing and getting significantly more expensive and like basically the community that she's known her whole life is disappearing and right in front of her and so um she like the story starts off with her going on this historical tour through her own neighborhood and she basically consistently points out the fact that like the tour only talks about people who lived there a really really long time ago and people who were generally just like white men and so she knows that there are plenty of people who have lived in this neighborhood who are not white men uh, who are and have done really amazing things and some of them still live in this neighborhood now and stuff like that. So he, she basically decides that she's going to start her own historical tour in this neighborhood. The other point of view is told from this character named Theo, who is a white guy who has relatively recently moved into this neighborhood. He's in kind of like this weird situation because he's bought a house with his ex-girlfriend. He grew up relatively poor. His ex-girlfriend is pretty rich. And so they decided to buy this house together and then their relationship basically fell apart. But now he doesn't have a job anymore. And so he can't really like leave. Um, And also he doesn't know how to leave when he like put in such a significant amount of his own like personal savings into this house, things like that. It gets really complicated. But like the rear window aspect comes into play because he basically lives in the attic of this Brooklyn brownstone and like stares out his window every day and like can see uh, Sydney's apartment from across his way. And he like watches all of his neighbors and stuff like that. 
And so while Sydney and Theo end up teaming up on this historical tour for reasons, and while they are doing their research, they start to notice some like really suspicious things that are happening in here. And I'll just kind of like leave it at that. But like I said, this book like really amped up my anxiety because what Alyssa Cole does in this story is she basically just like speaks truth about what it's like being a black person in the United States right now. Um, So like all of the situations that are played out for like the first, I would say half, if not like three quarters of the book are like realistic situations like gentrification and being pushed out of your home, being priced out of your home um, and like stores being abandoned because they can no longer afford the rent in these neighborhoods. Things about like being harassed by police officers um, or white people uh, basically just not liking their non-white neighbors and then saying they feel like threatened and are they will call the police because like the way that they're choosing to live their life, even though they're new to this neighborhood, doesn't like mesh with the way all of these people who have lived in the neighborhood have lived for a long time. Um, Alyssa Cole also like interweaves like a lot of what I think is real history about New York City and specifically Brooklyn and the people who have lived there. And even like history about like slavery in New York and things like that, which is not a thing that's really ever discussed, like especially someone living in Chicago. In the North, we like don't acknowledge that slavery ever existed in Northern states. And even if it didn't exist in the same way as it did in the South, like Northern states definitely profited from slavery in different ways as well. Um, And Alyssa Cole talks about all of that as well. So it like very much like plays on like the reality of like the current anxiety of the world. But then as the story progresses, it obviously like amps it up more and more until it gets into a slightly more... I guess ridiculous, but also at the same time, I'm like, isn't that ridiculous? Uh, Sort of ending. (laughs) The one thing I will say is that this is one of those stories that has like a very like slow build, like slow suspenseful build. And I think it's done on purpose. Like Alyssa Cole very much is like laying the groundwork for what happens at the end. And then the ending is very like high intensity, high paced. Um, And again, it very much feels like a get out type of situation where if you've watched Get Out, you know that like for the vast majority of the movie like you just feel like this slow build of tension and then like the last like 30 minutes or so is just like wild action and so this has like a very similar pacing so just sort of a heads up for that i've seen some people talk about how like this book was too slow quote unquote um which i mean i'm not gonna say people are wrong about their opinions but i do like feel like if you know that this is like a slow suspenseful book you'll probably end up enjoying it a lot more. So again, that's called When No One Is Watching by Alyssa Cole. Um, I definitely recommend it unless you have uh, significant anxiety, which this will not help with. (laughs) Well, I do, but (laughs) I'm still going to read it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like, it's still really good. But I think I mentioned this in last the last episode, too. But I would like I listen to this as an audiobook. And I listen to most of my audiobooks when I'm going for my walks outside. And I would just like stare at everyone around me suspiciously. Because this book is all about like being suspicious of your neighbors. And that's just what it ended up doing to me while I'm going for my walks. So yeah, I guess disclaimer for that. But also good job, Alyssa Cole, for invoking that in me. (laughs) All right. And then the other book that I read is called Diamond Doris. And this is a nonfiction book. It's basically like a memoir or biography by Doris Payne, who is basically like one of the world's most notorious jewel thieves. And I knew nothing about her until I saw that this book was coming out. Um, And then I was like, oh, I definitely want to read this book. 
And so if you aren't aware either, uh, Doris Payne is this black woman and she was born, um, I want to say in like the 1940s or so. Um, and she basically was a jewel thief for like 60 years. Um, so like until her like 70s or 80s, she was basically stealing diamonds uh, from jewelry stores, but not like in a smash and grab sort of way. She would literally just like walk into the store pretend to be a customer and then she started off like shoplifting like these smaller pieces but then she like learned how to get better at this and eventually she ended up stealing from major corporations in major cities like Cartier and uh like she went to Switzerland and stole a bunch of like really expensive Swiss watches and then she like learned how to you know sell all of these things off and she basically uh tells a story about her life So this book, I will say like the one thing I will ding about this book is that I just wanted more. It's not a very long book. Like I think I read it as an ebook, but I'm pretty sure like the physical copy is less than 300 pages. And I just wanted so much more information. Like this woman is so fascinating. And I want like a version of this book that's written by a journalist who talks to like the FBI and Interpol and stuff like that, because there's a lot of information in here about how Doris Payne basically like bought off. She lived in Cleveland for the vast majority of the time. And she basically ended up like buying off all of like the police officers and politicians in the area. So like she never got arrested for anything, even though she was like basically known as being a jewel thief. And then even like as things escalated, like the FBI for whatever reason, decided not to prosecute her, um, even though there were multiple situations where, like, they probably could have. Um, And it wasn't until, like, Interpol got involved that it started getting, like, actually serious. And then, even then, Interpol took, like, decades to be able to arrest her. And, like, I don't want to give away, like, what ends up happening, but, like, she literally, like, she doesn't spend any more than, like, a year in jail at any point in her life until she's in like her 70s or 80s, which again is just like wild. So yeah, this this book was really, really fascinating. Um, it is told entirely like from Doris Payne's point of view. And the way that it's written, it does say like she has a co-writer um, on the front and but like they've left it basically entirely in her voice. So I feel like this would be a really good book on audiobook if the audiobook exists, uh, because it's written in a way as if she's just like recounting her life and talking about um, what she's gone through. And it's like one of those books where while I was reading it, I felt so like conflicted because the way Doris Payne talks about stealing these jewels, part of you is like, okay, you're stealing. So obviously, this is a very wrong thing that you're doing. Uh, but also at the same time, like she talks about it in a way that kind of gets you to forgive her for doing these things. Um, she also goes into basically what her life was like growing up, like her father was abusive towards her mother. And like, that basically pushed her to want to provide for her family to get them out of that house and to have it so they weren't struggling anymore. Um, obviously, that like gets out of hand as she steals more and more and just wants to be able to afford finer things in life and whatnot. But it's wild. And uh, I'm pretty sure this is going to be made into a movie. And uh, it definitely deserves to be. But if someone wants to like take the story on and do a full version where you get also like the explanations from like police officers and the FBI, not that I think that they would actually talk about it. But like she was like basically wanted for decades. And she just like lived in Cleveland. (laughs) It's wild. It's absolutely wild. Um, So yes, again, the book is called Diamond Doris. It's by Doris Payne. Um, And if you are someone who enjoys sort of like jewel thief 
sort of stories and want like a real life one, this is uh, definitely a good story to pick up. All right. Well, real quickly, um, I finished listening to My Dark Vanessa over the last couple of weeks, um, which I talked about in the last episode. So I won't go into much about the controversy surrounding it. I will give, again, um, a trigger, major trigger warning for sexual abuse of a minor, um, just general abuse. It is, this is a fictional book, but holy cow, it does not feel fictional. But the basic storyline is that Vanessa, the main character, when she was 15, had a had a romantic sexual affair with her high school English teacher at boarding school. And the story alternates between her younger self starting at age 15 and then through the years and her present self, because in the present day, the same English teacher has been accused publicly by a former student of sexually abusing her. And so Vanessa... It, like I said, it goes back and forth between the two vantage points. Um, and the present day Vanessa is really psychologically struggling because she's still in contact with, with this man to some extent. And she's really struggling with how to come to terms with what happened to her because she's always told herself up until this point that it was a love story. It was romantic. He loved her. He cared about her. And as you read the parts where she was much much younger it's it it was not a love story obviously since she was 15 he was a teacher obviously it's horrific yeah this book just knocked my socks off i was listening to this on audio and i had this book in my ears almost 24 7 i could not stop listening to it i was i would be on the couch all evening with my headphones in I and Blaine would come out and he'd say something. I'm like, look, I'm listening to my book. Like, I, I got to talk to you later. It was horrifying, but I couldn't stop listening. And the author does such a brilliant job of portraying the characters. It's not it's not an easy story to listen to. There isn't it's a there's a lot of gray areas in in this story. And she does such an amazing job of portraying this situation as the complicated event that it was and she there's a lot of there's a lot of things to discuss about you know what role if if you if someone has been sexually harassed or abused by someone you know are they obligated to speak out about their abuse in order to help other people in order to prevent it from happening to someone else um if they choose not to do that for their own for their own reasons because it would be too traumatic you know what you know how do, how does that play in it is so complex and just so psychologically astute like i felt like you know, it's there. There are sections where the present day Vanessa is in therapy sessions with her therapist, and I felt like I was in my own therapy session. Like I already am in therapy. I already do weekly therapy, and I felt like this. These were like weekly therapy sessions. It was just holy cow! This book knocked me on my feet, and I was talking. I, I was telling Blaine about it just because I couldn't stop listening to it. And he was like, "Okay, what have you been listening to that has kept you so enthralled?" And I was telling him about it, and several times he kept asking questions. I'm like, no, 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 this is fictional. And he was like, oh, it is? Um, it's just that it's that realistic. And the story, you know, even though it is fictional, it is 
this has happened before to to real people, to real women, real girls. And yeah, it, this this was just a just like a punch to the gut, but it was it was so, there's so much to chew on, so much to think about. And in fact, that book um stayed with me so much that my next pick that I um started listening to almost immediately afterwards is a true crime book called The Real Lolita, The Kidnapping of Sally Horner and the Novel That Scandalized the World. Um because My Dark Vanessa there's a lot of references to the book Lolita for obvious reasons. And so this book, The Real Lolita, I've had on my shelves for a couple of years, but it looks at the real life kidnapping of this young girl in 1948 and how her capture and her abduction over the course of two years ended up influencing Vladimir Nabokov when he was writing Lolita. And how, you know, Lolita changed the face of 20th century literature, basically, but literally no one knew or knows who this girl was, Sally Horner. Um, so this is looking at that case and, and, you know, what transpired and how it influenced the writing of the novel and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, these are these are very dark books to be reading or listening to. But um, yeah, they're I, just one of those things that has always just like fascinated me and infuriated me is this, you know, this abuse of power and how people, not most frequently men, not always, but most frequently men use this, use their power over women or girls in these really horrifying ways. And so, yeah, that's, it's, it's dark subject matter, but it's, it's so compelling to kind of understand why this happens and how it happens and what it says about us as a, as a society. So, um, yeah, I guess sorry to end on a little bit of a dark note there. Holy cow. Um, but again, the book that I'm listening to right now is The Real Lolita, The Kidnapping of Sally Horner, and the novel that scandalized the world by Sarah Weinman. That's okay. We were late for like the vast majority of the episode talking about Scooby-Doo. <laughs> yeah, we went from Scooby-Doo to Lolita. Like... <laughs> Wow. Whiplash, I am so sorry. That's okay. Our podcast has the range. Um, so on that note, uh, that's our show. Thanks so much to everyone for listening. Uh, thank you to our wonderful sound editor, Jen Zink, for editing the episodes and always making us sound great. For show notes, you can head over to bookriot.com slash listen, where we will have links to the stories that we mentioned at the top of the show, as well as links to all of the books that we mentioned here today. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people discover us. Um, and if you want to send us an email with feedback or future show suggestions, you can find us at redordead at bookriot.com. Otherwise, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I am at A. And I'm on Twitter at KT underscore Library Lady. And we will talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.